And we're going to go ahead and look at our passage for today. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. Here it is. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, finished the race, I have kept the faith. And there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we are gathered here uh, together in your presence as a church family to worship you and to hear from you and to be reminded of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And we are here to celebrate that, Lord, and we are here to hear your voice speaking to us through the preached word, Lord. And I pray that uh, your word, as it goes out of my mouth, would bear fruit and accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Lord, we can do nothing apart from you, but with you, all things are possible. So we're asking you to do now what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you are new with us, uh, we have took a break from our series that we titled Vintage Season uh, Words to the Church in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, we took a two-week break uh, to focus on uh, the resurrection uh, of Jesus. And uh, we're going to jump back into it today. Uh, but 2 Timothy was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. And he wrote most of the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. And uh, he saw the resurrected Jesus. That's how his life got changed. Jesus rolled up on him. He was like, what are you doing, man? All right, and uh, changed his life. And Jesus commissioned him to go out to proclaim the good news of his resurrection. And he did what we're doing right now. He started churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And here he is at the end of his life. He is locked up for being a preacher. He's on trial before Emperor Nero. And uh, this is his last letter, his last words that he would ever write. So it's a serious letter. It's, a ser it's serious business. And he describes his life here uh, at the end of his life in terms of a battle. I fought the good fight. And I think we can relate. I think we can totally relate to that. These are very embattled and violent times that we live in. Uh, February of last year, 2022, uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine. And people are over there dying right now. Thousands of people have died. And I don't care what you believe about that and what ideas you got about it. There are thousands of people that have died. Thirteen and a half million people have been displaced from their homes. Can you imagine that? That's like everybody in New York City driven out of the city. Right? That's a lot of people, right? And that's, they're talking about little kids and things like that. Uh, I looked up, because I really wanted to get depressed this week, um, acts of terrorism in 2022. And there were seven terrorist attacks over 50 people. There was a lot more under. June 12th, jihadists attacked a village in Burkina Faso, which is a country in Africa. They went from shop to shop, killing over 100 people, burned their homes to the ground. This is the world that we live in, right? But the violence is not just out there. The violence is not just in Eastern Europe or over in Africa or the Middle East. Uh, there's violence everywhere. There's violence in our community. And violence is very broad. 
People commit personal violence and against one another through drunkenness and, and drug abuse. Um, I've heard stories even this morning from you guys about these type of things. Um, substance abuse and, and, and drugs are almost always involved. I heard a story uh, this past week right here in Morgan County, a kid not even two years old. We're talking like a, like a little toddler kid. Mom and dad were abusing uh, drugs, got into an accident, and the kid was found out in the field, just wandering around. This is close to home. Uh, we divorce one another. We become hard-hearted, refusing to be long-suffering and forgiving and, and uh, really uh, uh, hold on to the vows that we made before one another. We give up on one another, refuse to forgive. There's racism. All right, and listen, uh, we don't believe everything's attributed to racism here. We don't believe that because of the color of your skin that you're inherently racist. And this ridiculous uh, critical race theory uh, that is being uh, pushed in every facet in our culture is just um, completely uh, false, right? And it's ungodly. We don't believe that at all here. But every week, somebody makes racial, uh, uh, racist comment around me. And that's tragic. Don't do that around me, by the way. I'm going to tell you to knock it off. All right? Um, yes, yeah, racism uh, is everywhere. There's division everywhere. It's just people divide up, separate one another. We, uh, we don't want to be around one another. We don't want to like one another, love one another, care for one another, serve one another. The bottom line is that we like to fight. We like to fight. The question is, what are you fighting for? What are you fighting for. Everyone fights. I don't care who you are. And you always fight for what's most important to you, what you love and cherish and what you want to go after in life. And you might be here and you might say, I'm not fighting for anything. I don't care if it's just a bag of chips in your favorite TV show. You fought to get there. Right? You had to go to Food Line or wherever it was and get your bag of chips and, and your, you know, pay your bills because you wanted that me time or whatever it was. Full confession. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I've eaten several bags of chips uh, over the past couple weeks. I've loved every minute of it. Uh, you might say here this morning, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. I'm all about love, and I'm all about peace. We live in a culture that loves to virtue signal, right? That means externally, in some form, we like to advertise how loving we are. It could be through flags or stickers or yard signs, or whatever it is, we want to tell everyone about how loving we are. But here's the deal. No, we're not. Because the Bible says we are not naturally loving people. We are naturally sinners. We have enmity between God and one another, and we just don't like one another. So here's the deal. People who say they're all about love are not. They like to fight, too. You hang around them long enough, and you're going to see. They're passive-aggressive, and all kinds of different things. They get nasty. Uh, to people who don't toe the line and believe what they believe. Did I say that these were dying words from a dying man? And it was serious? That violence is serious. Uh, Bob Newhart, he was a, he was a comedian. Uh, he uh, had a skit on Mad TV called Stop It. Right? And it's really funny. I encourage you to go look it up. But he's a therapist. And uh, this young lady comes in, and she has a phobia, a fear of being buried alive in a box. Right? He keeps just telling her, stop it. Knock it off. Stop it. Everything, he's, everything she says, he just keeps telling her to stop it. 
She says, she said, well, I have destructive relationships with men. He said, stop it. Quit being such a big baby, All right? And here's the deal. That's what we do. We, we act like big babies a lot of times and throw adult tantrums, tantrums uh, and we go online, we get the keyboard courage, right? Rather than, rather than going and addressing whatever problem that we have with somebody, we'd rather send our problems to space through the internet and let it drop down like a bomb on Facebook and bring violence in someone's life. Put nasty comments and whatever else it is, and, right? What are you fighting for here this morning? What are you fighting for? Sad to say that prior to becoming a Christian, I was in some fights. And I'm not proud of that. I haven't been in one since. That's over 20 years. I don't want any problems here this morning. I'm old, washed up. You could, you could take me easy, right? I'll let you do it. Um, but here's, here's why I mentioned that. None of those mattered. None of those fights that I was involved, fist fights, mattered a hill of beans. They didn't bring any good into the world. So my question is, what do our fights really amount to? What good do our fights do in the world? A lot of times the answer is not much. <laughs> they do the opposite of good, right? They bring pain and suffering and division and brokenness into our world. See, we want to fight where it counts. Right? We want to fight where it matters, where it's good to fight. That's what our passage is all about. That's what our passage is all about this morning. Look at it again in verse 7. The Apostle Paul says here, I have fought the good fight. See that? There's a good fight uh, to be involved in. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Right? See, he's fighting for his faith in Christ. Fighting for sound doctrine the doctrine that was delivered over to him, the teaching uh, was delivered over to him by the Lord Jesus and the ministry that he had been given. So what is the good fight? What is the good fight? Well, it's a lot of things, but one of the things that it is, this is a fight against sin. Fight against sin. We uh, homeschool our girls because we want to be weird. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we homeschool our girls, and I, I teach the, I teach the uh, Bible to the girls in the morning, and, um, and uh, we uh, are going through this little book, it's called the uh, New City Catechism, and it's a way of teaching the faith, right, right, it's a way of teaching the faith by question and answer, okay, and, and there's a question in there, what is sin, and here's part of the answer, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created, that's what sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created, um, we have to fight against that. We have to fight against sin. We have to fight against rejecting God outright. I'm talking about the God of the scriptures, the creator God. We have to fight against rejecting that God. Here, here's how you reject that God. You just choose to disbelieve what the Bible says and you choose to disobey what the scriptures say. And we have to fight against that. We have to fight against ignoring God. Ignoring the God of scriptures, the God who rose Jesus from the dead. That's who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the God that we create out of our own imagination, who looks just like us, by the way. Not that one. The real God. And here's how you ignore him. You just live your life as if he's not there. Just forget about him. Just go on about your life and live it however you want, while all the while ignoring him and living as if he isn't there. But here's the deal. He is there. 
We cannot get rid of him. This is his world, and we are his people, and he is present within the world. He is the creator God outside the world, but yet he's involved. He's here. He's a reality that we have to deal with. We have to fight against sin because it will ruin us, it will destroy us, it will kill us, and ultimately it will damn us eternally. And it makes me think about Cain in the scriptures. Adam and Eve uh, had a couple sons, Cain and Abel. Cain became angry with his brother, and God intervened. This is what the Lord said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? This is God speaking to him. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It is, its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. See, see how sin is presented here? Sin is crouching at the door. See, that's what sin is. Sin is like a mountain lion, right? You don't see them coming, right? Sin is like a mountain lion crouching and hiding, waiting to come out and just rip you to shreds. It is not something to be dabbled with, played with, ignored, treating as trivial, acting like it's not real, or anything, anything like that, right? Cain, this is what happened to Cain. Uh, he rose up and murdered his brother, and it destroyed his, destroyed his life. Sin is at war with you, seeking to devour you, the Bible says. John Owen was, a, uh, was an English Puritan during the 16th century, and uh, he said in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Think about that. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, the Christ Christianity is a fight. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, I did it my whole life, he said. I fought the good fight. And maybe you haven't thought about it like that before. Maybe you've never thought about Jesus being a Christian as a fight. Right? Because a lot of times the Christianity that's presented in our culture is just inspirational. It's feel good. It, it, you know, it makes us feel good. We went to the church building. We went through the rituals and made me feel good about my day or whatever we do, whatever we think. No, the Bible says it is a fight. Um, JC, I was a guy named J.C. Ryle. He was an uh, Anglican uh, bishop. He wrote a, a book called Holiness. And it's, it's, it's a great book. It, it's, it, it's tough, but it's, it's good. This is what he says. The first thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is a fight. True Christianity. Let us mind that word true. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not true, genuine Christianity. Such Christianity may satisfy man. See, that makes us feel good. We did our religious duty. Right? Um, we did the, the tradition or whatever it is. And those who say anything against it may be thought very hard. Maybe that's what you think about me here this morning. Fight. These are some tough things that Ricky's saying up here. Uncharitable. Well, it's not very loving what he's saying. But that type of Christianity is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion that the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. It is not the religion that produces real holiness. True Christianity is a fight. See, the fight, he's saying here, is for true holiness. Holiness is, is uh, belonging to Jesus and becoming more like him uh, in your life. So let me ask you a question today. Are you fighting against sin? 
Can you think of a particular sin in your life or an area of your life where you're at war with that thing and you're trying to put it to death? You're trying to kill it because it's trying to kill you. What is that for you? Because the Bible says <laughs> we got all kinds of sins in our lives that we got to make, make, make war with. All right. Uh, so what is the good fight? Uh, we have to fight to be bold in the faith, courageous in the faith. It takes courage to follow Jesus. You know, if you've ever been in a fight, like a fist fight, that takes guts. It takes, it takes guts to, to step up. To, to, I'm not telling anybody to be violent, by the way. Don't put your hands on anybody unless they're attacking your family or something. I don't know. But it takes guts to do that, right? It takes courage uh, to fight, right? And it takes courage to follow Christ. It takes courage, especially nowadays. Paul said that he fought the good fight. And how did he do that? He fought for what is good. He fought to stand upon the Word of God, stand upon what the Bible says, and he preached and he taught it. Um, during the, uh, the 1500s, is what was called the, the Protestant Reformation, where there was this rediscovery of the Bible, right? Because the, not everyone, there was no printing press. The, not everyone had a Bible. And there was this rediscovery of the gospel, of, the, of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and why he came and all this. And it's called the Protestant Reformation. And there's a fictional novel that was written about that period. I want, I want to read to you um, what, what it says about that period, right? Think about it for our day today. Here's what it says. If we profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, that's the Bible, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you yeah, know this. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. See that? And to be steady um, uh, on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that point. So here's my question to you. What is the point where the world and the devil are currently attacking Christianity? Think about it. What teaching of the Bible, there's probably more than one, but what are those particular points where the world and the devil are at this moment attacking? Where does the battle rage? And here's where it is. It's over anthropology. I know that's a fancy word. I'm going to break it down. Anthropology is just what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a human being. What is a human being, and what are we here for? Here's what we think in our current world today. We think that whatever we feel is what we are. This is the world that we live in. That feelings are facts. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says it doesn't matter how you feel. The facts or the truth ought to teach you what to feel. That's different. We think if we feel it within, then it ought to be true. But it's not. There's a documentary uh, called uh, What is a Woman? 
And uh, it's just a guy um, going around asking people what a woman is. And uh, he went to the Women's March in uh, 2017, asked a group of young ladies there, uh, what is a woman? And they looked at him and they were just dumbfounded. Mind you, they were at a woman's march and they were women and they had signs, but yet they didn't know what a woman was. He asked a pediatrician and a professor what a woman is and she said it could be many things to many people. Now it only took her nine years of education and probably close to $200,000 to be educated into that. And then he went over and asked the African tribe, can a man become a woman? And they all laughed at him. Because it's obvious, a man cannot become a woman. Right? And, and so they all laughed at him. Uh, Bill Maher, he is a comedian. He hosts uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. He's been, he's been around for a long time. Somehow I came across this, uh, this, this clip. By the way, Bill Maher is not a fan of Christianity. He's not a Christian, right? But he said on the show that rates of people identifying on the LGBTQ plus spectrum is doubling every generation. So that means 10% for millennials, 20% for Generation Z, and his interpretation of that was, which means if we follow this trajectory, we all be gay by 2050. A couple people laughed. Yeah, he's a comedian. Yeah. And, you know, it's sad when comedians have more guts than Christian pastors because they're not in the fight. He went on to say, when things change this much, this fast, people are allowed to ask, what's up with that? When one in five kids out here in our community, in our public schools, one in five kids identify somewhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, are we allowed to ask questions? Are we allowed to ask, what's up with that? Of course you're not allowed to ask any questions. Right? You'd be homophobic, transphobic, you know, a bigot, every other nasty uh, uh, label. But we as Christians have to fight by standing on the truthfulness of the Bible, what the Bible says it means to be a human being, of what God and Jesus say it means to be a human being. Here's what it means. It means that you are created in the image of God, male and female, right? And we can feel all kinds of, we have all kinds of different struggles. Listen, I have all kinds of feelings of things that I would like to do, and you know what? I can't do them because they would hurt people and hurt me and destroy other people. I mean, think about some of the things that you think about that you would like to do that you got to say, I can't, where did that come from? I can't do that. Right? The Bible says we were created in his image, male, male and female, and that our sexuality flourishes in a marriage between a man and a woman, a biological man and a woman, uh, over a lifetime of marriage. You see, the fight is God's image and glory in mankind. This is, this is where the battle uh, uh, rages. That is all people, from the moment that they are conceived until the day that they are buried, are God's precious image bearers. And this is why abortion is a heinous evil. The 63 million precious little image bearers and worshipers of God have been murdered since 1973. There are nearly one million abortions per year on average. In West Virginia, in 2021, almost 1,400 little precious image bearers were murdered. 
There are also over 6,000 children in West Virginia right now at this moment in the foster care system. 6,000 little kids. 85% of those cases involving drug use. There are close to 50 cases right now in Morgan County of kids um, not in the home with, with mom and dad and, and who knows what's going on in that situation. I got a friend, he's a pastor down in uh, Milton, West Virginia, uh, Will Basham, his church in New Heights. Uh, he's been here to preach a couple times, great guy, really great church, they're big partners uh, of ours. Their church uh, has had over 40 families that have been involved in foster care and adoption. What a beautiful thing. What, what a be what, wouldn't that be cool if we did something like that? We had, man, like tons of families here that just loved on these kids who are out here suffering confused, fearful, wondering where mom, what happened to mom and dad, and, and they need godly Christian uh, parents to welcome them and bring them, bring them in and, and give them a home. That's being in the fight. So, how do we fight? How do you fight the good fight? I think there's some great um, insights and clues even from our passage here today. Look at it again in verse 8. Look at it again. Verse 8. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord Jesus, uh, the righteous judge, will give me. So the first thing we got to do is look to the crown. I missed that. All right, so how do we fight? We look to the crown. That's what, look what it says here in, in verse 8. Again, let's look at that. Yeah, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. You see that? That's how you fight. You look to the crown. So... Paul is fighting for his faith in Jesus by looking forward into the future with hope. See that? It's reserved for me. There's this crown out there that I'm looking forward to receiving. Uh, anybody into MMA in here? I got to know who, who might attack me. I gotta... Brandon's the only one. It's okay. Uh, I don't really watch a lot of MMA, but if you invite me out to it, I'll watch it. Um, MMA fighters, they fight to get the belt, right? Get the belt, yeah. Got the gold, strap it on. Champ, baby. I'm the champ. Hold it up, yeah. No, I'm the champ. Right? MMA fighters to get, fight to get the belt. So Paul was uh, fighting to get the crown. And listen, I don't know if we're going to get literal crowns as Christians. Uh, maybe we will. Maybe we'll get some super, super cool uh, crowns. But more importantly is what it means and what it stands for. So you have to picture the image here that at the end, when Jesus returns, him calling, you up, calling us up one by one and putting the crown on you and crowning you and honoring you before the entire world. And this passage says that it's a crown of righteousness. And here's what that means. Here's what that's getting at. That everyone... The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you are declared not guilty for your sins. You are completely forgiven of all your sins. In that very moment, even though you're guilty, God declares you not guilty because of Jesus. The crown, right, is God's gift to us, declaring us to be right with him, as right with him as Jesus is. Think about that. If you wonder about your, your status and your standing before Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, 
God has declared you to be as right, as righteous as Jesus himself. And that is his gift to believers. Not just forgiveness, but righteousness. And this all comes to us because of Jesus' life. That Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. And he substituted himself for us and for our sins at the cross. This is the meaning of the cross. The meaning of the cross is Jesus switched places with you. He substituted himself for you so that he could take the penalty for your sins. The judgment that was rightly deserved for your sins fell upon Christ and and not upon you, but he overcame sin, death, hell, and the devil through his resurrection. And we receive this gift by faith in Christ alone. Simply by believing it. Believing in the facts that he died for me. That he substituted himself for my nasty sins. For my violent heart. And everything that I've done. And I receive the gift of his righteousness into my life. And we don't receive this by doing anything. Checking anything off the box. Any type of religion or works. It is a gift of grace to receive by faith. Here's the deal. Faith is never alone, though. Faith is never alone. The only kind of faith that really matters, like saying you're a Christian and that you believe, the only kind of faith that counts is the kind that bears real fruit in our lives. It is faith alone that declares us right with God, but faith always yields transforming fruit in our lives. I want to show you, Jesus was such a good teacher. I want to show you this from the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, look at this. In the same way, this is a Sermon on the Mount, every tree that produces good, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And here's what he, here's what he means. Everybody who's come to believe in me, who I am and what I've done for them, is a good person, is a good tree. And then out of that good tree produces good fruit. You see that? So, we're talking about how to fight, right? You fight by looking to this crown. And it's a crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness simply means this, that we have a real relationship with the real King Jesus. That's all it means. We have a real relationship to the King. That we were traitors at one time. We rebelled against him. We were his enemies at one time, but he lived for us and died for us and forgave us and declared us to be on the right side. If you believe in Jesus, guess what? You are on the right side of history according to Jesus, our King and our Judge. And so, here's what you want to do with your life. If you really believe that, you want to honor the King, don't you? Don't you want to live for Him and honor Him and bear good fruit uh, in your lives? And when you have done so, when you have honored Him with your life, one day He's going to honor you for the entire world. You may be forgotten. You may be ignored. You may be looked down upon. You may have done a lot of dirt in your life. You believe in Jesus and you want to honor him. You may be a complete stranger and nobody to the world. But guess what? One day, Jesus is going to stand you before the entire world. He's going to place whatever that crown is on you and say, this is my brother and my sister and they have loved and honored me. Now I'm going to honor them. Wow. 
That's pretty amazing right there. That's pretty amazing. And it is okay to look forward to the crown, right? It is okay. That's what Paul is saying here. Listen, I'm in a stinky, nasty Roman jail cell, but I got something waiting on me. I got a crown reserved for me, and I'm working towards that. I'm not going to bow before this punk Nero because I have a king, and his name is Jesus, and I'm looking forward to getting that crown one day. So we ought to as well. We ought to look forward to that crown and live a life that is worthy of it. 2 Timothy 4, 8 again. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which, look at this, how it describes Jesus here. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Look at how Jesus is described here. The Lord, that means he's God. And he's the righteous uh, judge, right? Jesus the judge of all was judged so that you could be crowned at the judgment. Think about that. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is resurrected from the dead and he is the judge of all history and humanity. And at the cross, that judge was judged for your sins. So that at the final judgment, you could be crowned. What? <laughs> This is amazing good news. This is the good news uh, of the scriptures. So here's my point. This was all set up. How does that help us? How does that help us fight against um, sin and things like that? Well, one of our biggest temptations and sins is worrying about what other people think about us. And the Bible calls this the fear of man. The fear of man. And... Uh, I was talking with some, uh, some folks at work this past week, and, and I lead substance abuse groups, and I was thinking about this. So uh, we talked about it as a group. How does drugs and alcohol relate to worrying too much about what other people think about you? Had a guy in the group, and he's like, man, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't give a rip what anybody says, thinks, whatever. I said, okay, let's just... Let's just Think about it. Let's press a little bit deeper into it, and let's just, let's just see. And by the end of it, his whole demeanor changed. He was like, yeah, yeah, I got a problem with this too. Right? We all do. We all care way too much what other people think about us. There's a, there's a book, there's many books, but there's a book on the topic by a Christian uh, teacher, counselor. Uh, the name of the book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. I mean, people are big and God is small, right? And the cover of the book is telling because it has a magnifying glass and over people, it's real big. So this is what we do as people. People's opinions, uh, perspectives, whatever they think about us, we blow it up, right? And we make it bigger than what God says about us. When people are big and God is small. I, I highly encourage you to get that book and read it. But that's what we do. People's approval of us, their acceptance of us, becomes bigger than God's. Now, how would you know if you're doing this? How would you know if you really struggle with this, or you're tempted to it, or maybe you're enslaved to it? Well, let me ask you this question. How do you handle criticism? Do you always respond with, hey, thank you. I'm going to think about that, or you're right. I'm completely 
wrong or whatever it is. No, we, we, we uh, get upset, we justify, uh, we blame shift, make excuses, uh, and all kinds of different things. Because we naturally don't like to be criticized, even if it's true. What happens when you face disapproval? When someone disapproves of you, or they don't like you, or maybe they don't follow you on Facebook, or I don't know, whatever it is. You know, they unfriend you, or how do you handle disapproval? Are you insecure at times? We all are, by the way. Do you think that people are looking at you? You walk in a room, they're looking at me. Why are they looking? I can't tell you how many fights my friends got into back in the day because someone looked at them. <laughs> it's silly. All right, in what situations do you find yourself, uh, so, uh, social situations, uh, what, what situations do you, where, do, uh, sorry, in what situations do you avoid social interaction? We all do this. Don't want to go there. I don't want to. I want to be in this. I don't want to go to food line or whatever it is. I don't want to go to this particular function or hang out with these people. All right. So how do you fight against this sin? Because the Bible calls the fear of man a sin, right? Psychologists want to psycho, uh, psychologize it away and call it social anxiety, right? But the Bible calls it sin. Right? It's just it's a form of violence. It's a failure to love care for other people. It's being self-consumed. So how do you fight against that? Well, you've got to look to the crown. That's what we're talking about. This is how you fight. You look to the crown. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven and accepted by the judge of the universe. <laughs> if you have been forgiven and accepted by the judge of the universe, who cares what other people think? You are loved, and you are cared for, and you are accepted. What does it matter what people think about you? It matters what God thinks and his acceptance of you. You see, when you believe that and you preach that to yourself, you're going to find over time that you're less anxious in social situations. Listen, all of us struggle with this. All of, you're not alone in this. You're not alone in feeling anxious in, in social settings or, or nervous or awkward or whatever. We all deal with it. I remember, I'll tell them myself, how about that? You know, I've been preaching and doing this type of thing since 1999. But I was terrified. You know what people's biggest fears are doing this, standing up in front of people and talking. And I remember I was, uh, I was at school in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I was doing this inner city ministry. And they asked me to come speak to a group of teen, uh, teenage girls. And I stood up in front of them and froze. And I couldn't say a word because I was terrified of the teenage girls. Right? We all struggle with this. Right? But over time, you can fight it. Right? If, you if you believe this, that you're accepted, loved, cared for by the judge of the universe then over time, you realize that you can, you can get a lot better at receiving criticism, even if it's from your enemies. There may be a grain of truth in what, what they're saying, right? If you believe and preach this to yourself, it's good news that you, you are accepted by Jesus, by the, by the creator, God, right? Then you'll find yourself not avoiding people in certain social situations. All right, how do you fight? 
Number two, you love his appearing. Look at this in verse 8 again. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Look at this. There's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, look at that, but to all who have loved his appearing. That's talking about us. You know what this, this is teaching us? Uh, as a church, it is teaching us that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has risen from the dead. How is he going to appear if he's dead? He's going to appear again, and he is the judge. He's coming again. I want to show you another passage where this teaches this in, in, in the scriptures. There's a lot. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. See that? Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That's us. We are waiting for him to return. Now, when we think about the situation that Paul was in in 2 Timothy, where was he? He was locked up in jail in a nasty Roman jail cell, probably in a hole with a little shaft of light coming down in there. He was being shamed. He was being condemned. He was being canceled as a criminal. Locked up as a criminal. For what? For being a Christian. That's all he was doing. He was doing what I'm doing. He was just simply telling everybody about Jesus and preaching that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. See, but here's the deal. He knew the truth. He knew the truth. That Nero was not the final judge that Jesus is. He was looking forward to his appearing, and that's how he was fighting to stay encouraged uh, in his faith. I used to uh, play basketball when I was uh, living in uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, downtown at the, at the Virginia Commonwealth uh, University Rec Center uh, at VCU. I used to love going down there and just, man, just, just messing with those young kids, man. Just, I mean, just, you know, just hitting them with the move, you know what I mean? Hitting them with the jump shot, you know, just frustrating them, you know. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed playing basketball down there, but it, it, you had to get on a good team or there was tons of students in there or you were going to be one and done. You know, you're going to play one game and you're going to be off. You're going to be waiting for an hour or two. So one day I was over lacing up my shoes and I saw these guys come in with, blue warm-ups, right? And I saw on the warm-up said St. Louis on it. I said, oh, these dudes, these guys are uh, playing for St. Louis University, right? So was, uh, Virginia Commonwealth was playing them uh, this coming week, and uh, it was Division I basketball uh, players. They were in there just trying to work out and, and uh, get a little practice in. So I said, all right, uh, I need you all on my team. I need you on my team because uh, I didn't want to play one game and have to wait a couple hours. And let me tell you, we wiped the floor for hours with these guys. I mean, I'm throwing alley-oops. They're catching them, just crushing them on people. One, one of the guys actually uh, uh, was really good. He, he did really well in the NCAA tournament and, and all that. So my point is they showed up and they appeared all of a sudden and we just wiped the floor with these kids. And here's, here's the point. Jesus is going to show up again one day. 
He is going to crack the sky. He's going to come back. He's going to appear, and he's going to wipe the floor with his enemies. All those, and that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing that, that he administers justice and righteousness, and every, takes everything sad that's in the world out of it, and everybody who's doing violence to one another, and he's going to crown his followers. He's going to crown them. Look into Jesus. His appearing helps us to fight where the battle rages. So if he is going to appear again one day, he's going to come back and crack the sky, we don't have to worry about whatever the culture uh, is doing to shame Christians and to say that we are uh, hateful and, and, and whatever else. We don't have to be ashamed to stand on what the Bible says about gender and sexuality and marriage and, and, and whatever else. God made us male and female in his image regardless. Why would we be ashamed of what, of what Jesus taught? Why would we be ashamed of what Jesus says? Hey, there's no shame in this. Matter of fact, there's shame in the opposite. Wait, we don't have to be ashamed. And you, you know what's going to happen in between the, fact, the, the time that Jesus appeared the first time and his appearing the second time? He is going to save a whole bunch of of people. All kinds of folks, right, who maybe identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum or, or whatever else. People that you think God will never save that person. He is going to save those folks. And guess what? I was one of the people. I was one of the people that, I'm sure everybody thought, what? Ricky Love, a uh, pastor, a preacher, a Christian, what? what? What's going on? Right? Yeah, because Jesus got a hold of me. And there's a lot of people out here that Jesus is going to get a hold of these folks. You see, the judge, Jesus, is also the Savior who died for them to win them over to his side. This is what Jesus does. Jesus bleeds and dies for his enemies to melt their hearts in love to make them his friends. And that's all of us. Right? That's what he does. His love and his grace and his forgiveness overwhelms us. And we just need to be bold about that. Don't hide it. The temptation, what the enemy and the demons want you to do is just retreat. Retreat to your uh, Christian um, uh, bunker. Don't be bold. Don't share it. Don't talk about it. No, you need to share it even more and declare it. Why not? Everyone else is loud about what they believe. Tell them about Jesus. Of course you do it with love. Of course you do it with wisdom and kindness. You build a friendship with folks. All we got to do is share the gospel and let Jesus do his thing. That's all we got to do. Lastly, here I'm almost done. We live poured out. That's the third thing. How do you fight? You live poured out. Look at, look at our passage in verse um, 6. Look what Paul says here. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is close. So the Apostle Paul uses two really vivid imager, images here to portray um, his coming death. He knows he's about to get executed. He's on trial. And he says, listen, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. This, is, this comes from um, the Old Testament sacrificial system. God chose the nation of Israel, and he uh, commanded them to make uh, blood sacrifices, um, uh, as a means for them to be right with him, which always pointed forward to the death of Jesus on the cross. And this is what he was trying to teach them, that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming into the world as a sacrifice uh, for sins. 
And uh, when they sacrificed uh, a lamb, they would pour wine at the base of the altar. And Paul is saying here, my life, my life is being poured out like a sacrifice. So let me ask you a question. Are you being poured out? Are you being poured out? And here's what I mean. I don't mean like just doing a bunch of stuff and busy work. I mean, is your life being poured out in service to Jesus, in sacrifice to Jesus? How, how was Paul doing that? How was Paul pouring out his life? Well, he was telling everyone about Jesus. This is what he's doing with his dying breath, right? He was sharing the good news of Jesus' resurrection with everyone, and so should we. We should share it with everybody we come across. Tell them Jesus loves them and that he died for them. He cares about them. And uh, what was Paul doing? Yeah, he was serving the church. That's, this is what he's doing with his dying breath. This, this, blood that is see, this, this letter that is seasoned with Paul's own blood, he's writing to the pastor of a church telling, the, telling him, that this is how you love the church. This is how you be a, a good pastor and so should we. We should pour ourselves out for what God is doing in and through the local church. And I mean this church. Right? So if you're here, right, listen, there are all kinds of opportunities to get involved here and, and to serve. And I would love to help you uh, get connected with one. Everybody needs a job to do. If you're here, Jesus is calling you uh, to get a job in the church, to do, get a task. And it's something that you can do uh, to serve uh, God in and through uh, the church. Uh, another way that we can live poured out is pouring yourself out for your family. Yes, pouring yourself out for your family. That is such a precious uh, gift that God has given to you, loving and serving uh, uh, your family. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, well, I don't have a family. Congratulations, you got one now. It's a local church family right here. Here you got brothers, sisters, you got nieces, nephews, you got granddad, you got every, we're all your family and we adopt you, right? So you got all kinds of people to love right here. Congratulations. We love you. You're a part of the family, right? That's what the Bible says about the church. So if you do have a family, though, your family ought to be a little church where dad, dad is, is leading the church that little church of your home, to love and serve Jesus. And if dad is not there, then you do the best that you can, right, uh, to get your family to love and serve uh, Jesus Christ. And see, listen, we want to pour ourselves out for the next generation as a church, next generation in our community uh, and beyond. Now, we don't want to just be a church that 40 years uh, later that someone walks in and is like, man, it's just a bunch of old people, older people, and uh, there wasn't no life in there, wasn't no birth, uh, wasn't no Jesus up in there, wasn't no energy and excitement, you know, nothing happening in there, you know, and it's just dying and dead and people just hanging on for dear life. No, that's not what God wants us to do. We, look, what is Paul doing here? He is passing the torch. He's saying, listen, Timothy, I fought the good fight and now it's your turn. You go and fight the good fight. You pass that torch onto someone else. This is how God's faithfulness continues in the world from generation to generation. This is why you are here. This is why we planted this church. We want to pour ourselves out for the next generation. And guess what? There's going to be generations after them. Right? We want to, see, we want to look down through the future. 
How cool would it be if Wellspring participated in starting other churches all around this region right here and beyond? Right? We don't want to just do this right here. Praise God for this. This is just the beginning. And this is why we want to plant other churches and be involved in efforts to train other pastors and church planners to do um, this type of work so the gospel will continue to spread. Um, I listened to a podcast, and uh, the guy who does the podcast uh, practices MMA, right? A lot of talk about MMA here today, but uh, uh, we're talking about fighting, though. So his um, trainer asked him, what is a black belt? And the guy said, well, that's somebody you run from. You run from someone with a black belt. His trainer said, no, a black belt is a white belt that doesn't quit. So here's my encouragement to you today. Don't quit on Jesus. Don't stop following Jesus. And if you're not in the fight, you need to get in the fight right now. You need to surrender your life to Jesus because he loves you and he died for you, and he was buried for you, he resurrected for you, and all that, so you could be forgiven. You could be welcomed uh, home to him from your, by your creator. This is what you were created for. This is why you're here. So, if you're not in the fight, you've got to get in the fight now and keep going. Paul says, I finished the race. Keep running. Keep running until the end. Keep fighting. Do it until the day you die or Jesus returns. I said here our passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 has two images of his coming death. And one is his life as a sacrifice. The second is, he says, the time of my departure is close. And this is really uh, nautical language and boating. This is boating imagery. The boat departed. And uh, you really have to imagine, this is such a beautiful image. If you've never been to Sleepy Creek Lake, up on this mountain, over here, there's a beautiful lake that is several miles long. It is absolutely gorgeous. Picture yourself. You've been camping. The next day you wake up, you get all of your supplies in your canoe or your kayak or whatever. You got your fishing gear. You got your lunch. Man, you're set. And you untie that rope and you shove off from the bank. That's the image that Paul is uh, giving us here. And here's what he's saying. That the person, you, who fights the good fight, ends their life like that. It's just a nice day on the lake. Paul, in that Roman jail cell, about to be beheaded for the most powerful man in the world, says, man, I'm just getting ready to go have a nice day on the lake. I fought the good fight. Man, what good news? What good news is the gospel? Man, this is, this is incredible. And this is the good news uh, that we get to respond to now.